You're listening to Lane Powell Live, www.lanepowell.com. It wouldn't be a legal presentation if we didn't include a disclaimer. We want to note that the information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. All information, content, and materials available today are for general informational purposes only. Legislation and regulations are always subject to change, so we recommend that you always check with your legal counsel to ensure that any advice you receive is current. You'll find our full disclaimer at our website, lanepowell.com. Thank you for joining us today. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Pacific Northwest Business Aviation Association's Leaders in Aviation podcast. My name is John Gale, President of the Pacific Northwest Business Aviation Association, and I'm joined by fellow PNBAA Governor, Executive Committee member, and Lane Powell attorney, Becky Maris. It was Becky who developed the idea of hosting a PNBAA podcast as we had been contemplating ideas to provide our members with unique content of interest to all. I'd first like to thank Becky for her initiative in making this podcast come to fruition and her law firm, Lane Powell, for their partnership, support in producing this podcast and commitment to continuing professional education. In this podcast, we highlight people that contribute to aviation in interesting and sometimes fascinating ways. We're excited to speak with our guest today who has a truly unique story to tell. His story includes universal lessons in business, geopolitical awareness, communications, innovation, critical thinking, negotiating skills, cultural competency. It also includes a little mystery and international intrigue. He will offer some exceptional insight into how these areas may all come together in situations that require a very high level of performance when, as is often the case, least expected. Who we have with us today is Captain Bo Corby. Bo's story transcends aviation, highlighting how complex the world of aviation really is. His story is of as much value to those in aviation as it is to business leaders, government officials, communications and public affairs professionals, and social science researchers. His story weaves in the areas I mentioned with aeronautical decision-making, exceptional airmanship, sound judgment, strong leadership, effective crew resource management, and situational awareness in what he learned as a result of his decision at 0430 local Tehran time to divert Northwest Flight Number 41 due to an in-flight emergency ultimately landing in the capital of Iran on June 19th, 2005. Bo, welcome and thank you for your time today. It's an honor and privilege to speak with you. Thank you, John. The first thing, if you don't mind, would you just tell us a little bit about your journey, uh, the path from St. Louis University to Northwest Airlines DC-10 captain um, scheduled to fly from Mumbai to Amsterdam, but destined for Tehran early in the morning of June 19th, 2005. Well, John, I uh, graduated from St. Louis University in uh, 1969. And during that period, there was a lot of airline hiring, although um, I did not have the flight experience to be able to qualify as the competition was really very difficult. Why was it so competitive at the time? Well, because of the Vietnam War, there were really quite a few pilots that gained military experience. And most of the airlines Of course, uh, as an example, for one position, there may be two or 3,000 applicants. So unless you had some really solid, good training and experience, they're gonna pick the cream of the crop, which is what was happening at that time. 
I elected to join the Marine Corps and went down for a physical to Navy Memphis, took the physical, got accepted, passed all the tests, and just prior to graduation, they called us all back for a final physical and washed out four of us. I had a refractive error in my left eye of .0015, and at that time, that was a disqualification. I had thought ahead, what if I can't get in the Marine Corps, um, what am I going to do? So I applied at Boeing. It just so happened through luck, uh, when the Marine Corps said no, Boeing said yes. So I went to work for the Boeing Company in 1969, working in their ground school as an uh, instructor for the Boeing airplanes. And that went on for a very short period of time because uh, Senator Proxmire shut down the SST, which basically shut down Boeing in Seattle. And I found myself on the, the bad end of a jackhammer uh, doing anything I could to survive. So at that time, I became really discouraged and wondered if flying was really what I was going to be able to do. So I actually bought a motorcycle and I rode around the United States. I took a year doing every job I could find to see if I was good at anything else and I wasn't. I wound up coming back uh, to Seattle after the year and I just threw resumes out to everything and wound up getting a job flying mail for the post office in uh, uh, Lubbock, Texas. I flew mail on a Beach 18 at night, uh, flying all kinds of weather conditions and aircraft. And really that set the baseline for my, uh, what flying skills I do have because it basically was a job of survival. That's what um, I was just gonna say, you lived to tell about it. You lived to tell about it. Those who weren't good didn't make it. And I lost a number of friends uh, in that arena. Then following that, Boeing had gotten through its doldrums and was gearing up again to sell more airplanes. And I got invited to come back and work in the ground school again, which I did for um, a few years. And uh, I happened to uh, be out one evening and I, I saw a gentleman at a restaurant sitting by himself that I had recognized from the school uh, at Boeing. And I went over and introduced myself and um, just started a conversation with him. It turns out he was the head dispatcher for Iran Air. And uh, at that time, Boeing was housing him in Tacoma. And he had to take a bus every day. And it was, I could tell, really stressing him out. And I had rented a house that had four rooms. And I offered, I said, I have a a free room Maybe in the we house. can work something out here? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. I said, <laughs> you know, I go to Boeing every day right where he was going. So uh, he was very appreciative and took me up on the offer. And uh, so he spent two weeks with me. And we got to be really good friends. And uh, then, of course, he goes off and disappears. And during the course of that two weeks, I explained to him that I really, I really wanted to fly for the airline. I, that was my goal. And how tough it was in the U.S. to do that, but I was going forward and I was determined that was what I was going to do. Two months later, I got a telegram from Iran and uh, from the Vice President of Operations inviting me to Tehran for an interview um, to become a flight engineer pilot with Iran Air. So I couldn't turn it down, so I went to Tehran, took the interview, and uh, two months later, I was in Tehran and I spent uh, about a year and a half, I believe, maybe a little more in Iran. And during that course of events, 
uh, I happened to come in contact with the director of operations of Syrian Arab Airlines, who really wanted me to come to work with Syrian Arab. So I, I talked to the people in Iran Air, and they were kind of, um, I guess you might say, reducing their operation to a degree where they didn't mind if I took another job. Some of the pilots were starting to get back in the U.S. at that time. Were there a lot of uh, expatriate pilots? What, like, actually, obviously a very different world then. I'd say 50% of the pilots at Iran Air at that time were um, foreigners, foreigners yeah. to Iran. To Iran, yeah. Yeah, they were, um, we had Dutch, French, Italian, uh, which was really interesting because the cockpit could have people from three different countries. And you really learned a lot. You need to learn really quickly how to get along with people that have very different backgrounds and very well, different uh, training and very different experience. Absolutely. Make it all work. So I went to Syria and I, I was in Syria about six or eight months um, and finally was contacted by a U.S. supplemental carrier that I had done some work for back in the 70s and got invited to, to go to work with them. And I thought, well, I, I finally made it to a U.S at least a U.S. kind of airline, and the first place they sent me to was Cairo. Fabulous experience. After that experience, I spent two months in uh, Sudan. Then eventually I got on with Hughes Air West in the U.S., and then Hughes merged with Republic, Republic merged with Northwest, and at Northwest, I finally got to captain on the DC-10, and that's when this particular interesting experience occurred. Right. So. Wow. And and unbeknownst to you, this is all laying the foundation for what is to what is to come. And I think that's true for anyone. No one really knows how their past experience uh, is going to eventually assist them in dealing with um, situations that occur which they have no knowledge of and and have to deal with. So. That's why I think it's so important to not only understand that kind of perspective as you go along through your life, through your career, and that sort of thing, that you, you, you just never know. And it's important to understand other people's perspective and how they work. You figure out ways to, to um, achieve your goals, complete a mission, whatever it is, by working with people that uh, may have a very, very different background than you, very different perspective than you and you just never know when, when that all comes together. But it sort of seems to me that there's value there, whether it's a, a captain on a flight deck or a business leader or a, uh, a politician, you know, so many different areas that, uh, that is, uh, that's just, I think, fundamentally important. So, Bo, you know, we're here to talk to you about a specific event. Maybe you could set just some of the background so we have a little bit of historical and geographical context. Perspective, yes. When I got on originally the, the DC-10. Uh, Northwest Airlines, the early 2000s, they made an agreement with KLM, partnership with KLM. And what that did is it opened up a lot of uh, markets to Northwest that they hadn't previously had. As a result of that relationship between Northwest and KLM, our aircraft started flying routes uh, to Asia from the other way, through Europe. And so we really, truly became an around-the-world airline. Although we were before, this was truly with a route structure that circled the globe. And one of the routes that we had was Amsterdam to Mumbai, India, which originally was Bombay. Uh, it was a pretty long flight, 
typically um, eight and a half hours from Amsterdam to Mumbai. And we went across Europe, we'd cross Turkey, and we'd fly over Iran into Pakistan, across the Pakistani border into India. And then we'd come back basically the same way. This event, I had flown this trip at that time maybe 15 or 20 times, so I was fairly uh, familiar with it. Also, the Iraq war was going on, and on our Jepson maps, the whole country of Iraq was blanked out. It just had lines through it. There was no information. This is Desert Storm 2, Iraq right. war, right? right. Yeah. The aircraft we were flying was a, um, a DC-10, what they called EER, extended range. It's a three-engine transport capable of carrying 255 people plus a crew of seven. What first alerted you that there was a situation on board the aircraft? This event occurred in the middle of the morning. We didn't leave till basically midnight. So the routine was that the first thing we do is we'd get something to eat. So the flight attendants would bring us up the, uh, the donuts, believe it or not. <laughs> and then following that, we'd have our meal. So we had um, finished the pastries and uh, we had just gotten our meal. As we were eating, I, I saw something, a flicker of a light in, to my left and I looked and I didn't see anything and didn't think anything about it so I went back to the conversation and uh, I saw it again. And I asked my, my crew, I said, did you guys see any lights flickering? And they go, no, we didn't see anything. So, okay. so. We go on for a little bit more, and um, then it flickered again, and the engineer told me, he says, I saw a light flicker on my panel, and he just caught it out of the corner of his eye. So that's how the whole thing started. We, we didn't know what was going on, but we had flickering lights, and usually that's an electrical problem of some kind. So that kind of raised our level of awareness. And you saw the flickering light, but you weren't sure which, what it was. Correct. What procedures did you follow to try to ascertain whether the problem was significant or? First was identifying what it was and um, following the, the story up until that point. Now the light came on, stayed on. We had two master caution lights on the glare shield in front of the pilots and there was a master caution on the engineer panel. Uh, in addition to that, a cargo firelight illuminated. Now we knew what we had. The pressure now is building. The airlines have fabulous training. It's really, really good. And they try to train for as many eventualities as they possibly can. So you're, you're fairly well prepared. You have books and manuals that... Um, are very detailed, they're choreographed, basically, um, so that when you're faced with a, with a situation, you identify, you find it in the book, you accomplish a procedure. So we were pretty rote in doing all those things. You go into the rote mode of accomplishing this. And then during that period of time, there isn't much evaluation going on other than looking at the procedure, looking at the situation, following a decision tree down to the completion of the procedure, uh, which we did, and uh, that resulted in us um, activating uh, the cargo fire extinguisher system 
into the cargo compartment. And we have, that airplane had um, the capability of, of um, expending three canisters in the cargo hold. And this was our first one. From the cockpit, we could only activate two. There was a third, but the third would happen automatically based on one of two conditions. Number one, if it had been an hour and a half, hour and 30 minutes from the, the activation of the second bottle, it would automatically go off. Or if you touch down before the end of an hour and 30 minutes, it would go off. The idea right. is just to ensure the fire is out kind of thing before right. anybody opens a cargo door exactly. and introduces oxygen and that sort of thing. So we had, we had activated the first bottle. We accomplished the uh, procedure. And uh, at that point, now the food goes away, right? <laughs> we don't need the food. No more donuts. No more donuts. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, um, we started looking at potential diversion points. Where were you in the air about this time? Uh, we were probably, I would guess, it's been a long time, but I, I think we're about 100 and probably 50 miles from Tehran. We started discussing where we were going to go. <clears throat> the first thing is, is you got to communicate that we have an issue. And we use HF. HF is high frequency radio communications and basically the um, radio waves bounce off the ionosphere back down to earth eventually to the receptor. If there's problems with the ionosphere which is constantly moving it can interrupt communications. Tons of static on HF so you, you can hear words but you have to listen very very carefully. And that particular night um, all we heard was static. So we, we would transmit that we have a uh, uh, relay, please. We have a uh, situation aircraft, cargo fire warning, planning a divert, please advise. Because you, you want your dispatch system to be part of the solution, right? Because they're in the ground under low stress situations and they can look at things practically. As you start to build more and more stress, then you know, it, it starts to narrow your focus. It's almost as though you go into a survival mode. Okay, now, I can tell you that during that initial experience, I do remember to this day thinking about other accidents that had recently occurred with cargo fires. You have to assess the threat, you assess the time frame that you have, Fear comes into it because you don't know what's happening. I do remember thinking about particularly those two uh, crashes that occurred because they delayed in getting the airplane on the ground. That went through my mind. And for folks that don't understand that system and where this where where this fire indication in the cargo hold, you have no way to physically check that. All you have is your the, your warning system Indicator. and your indicators. There's right. no way to like go and look and see if, hey, can somebody see a fire going on in there? Right. So it, it got more interesting. Um, we had fired the first bottle. We were looking at the charts, trying to figure out where we're going to go. We're trying to communicate with the company to get some input as to what you know they might suggest we could do. But in the meantime, we knew there was a sense of urgency. So 
just as we're discussing this, the fire warning comes on again. And I can remember, we all three looked at each other. It, it's almost like this can't be happening. What does that really mean? Well, it means that obviously the first bottle, according to what we've been trained, was not adequate. And the fire, if it is there, is not out. At the same time, because of the way the fire warning presented itself, in other words, the flickering lights not coming on completely, the question is going through your mind, is that because it was heating up and wasn't making however it makes contacts? Or is that some kind of an anomaly? That goes back to what you said earlier. That, is this a fire or is this an electrical? Maybe this is an electrical exactly. issue. Exactly. And we didn't know. And you don't know. How many people do you have on board? We had uh, 241 people and seven crew members. So that's weighing on you at the same time that you've got almost 250 souls that you're responsible for. Oh, you would think for. so, but honestly... Everyone would like to think that, but I didn't think about that at all. At that point, I'm thinking about survival. If this crew gets the airplane to the ground, they'll be fine. If we don't get it in the ground, everybody's gonna go. So we were pretty much getting into a survival instinct at that point. I um, think that goes to some of our training that has evolved certainly over time, but now when we talk more about the ability to be able to compartmentalize and focus on the task at hand, not get distracted by those sorts of things that may um, bias your decision-making, contribute to not taking care of the real problem at hand, and uh, maybe uh, have you making uh, emotional decisions uh, rather than um, more rational uh, decisions based on whatever the problem is that you're presenting. Yeah, that's with. a really yeah. good point. I think that when you're in that situation, information is bombarding you. And it's a matter of filtering out the information that's not important, somehow organizing that information in some sort of priority, and then picking off the things that have the most uh, opportunity to kill you. Get rid of those first, <laughs> right? So which right now is get rid of the fire. Right. So we fire the second bottle. Now it's, it's serious. I distinctly remember asking... Uh, my flight engineer, Chase Osborne, I said, Chase, will you call our purser? His name was Jerry Maguire, by the way. Really? Oh, <laughs> what a wonderful man he was. And the flight attendant that was uh, in the first class, he said, well, Jerry's on break right now. And uh, I, I distinctly remember Chase saying, well, get him off break. We need him up here right now. <laughs> and uh, so Jerry came up and I, I said to Jerry, Jerry, we've got an anomaly in the cabin. We don't know what it is. We've had a fire warning. It could be a false warning. We're not sure. Could you please go back and put your crew on alert and uh, have them assess the cabin and come back to me as quickly as you can so we can get some information about what is happening back there. We're planning on diverting. We're gonna divert to probably uh, either Bahrain, Oman, or maybe somewhere in Turkey. We don't know yet. We're working on that. We'll let you know. You're going to have about, from right now, probably neighborhood of an hour and an hour and a half to get everything set up. We had a thing in the airplane we called the brick. And the brick was a huge stack of uh, approach charts for all the airports that we would never use. But we had them there, and they were in cellophane. And I asked... Uh, Chase, my engineer, to break out the brick and see get the charts for Bahrain. There was an airport across the Iranian border 
uh, in Turkey that we could use. Now, at this point, I, I should probably diverge a little bit and say that while we were in training um, for the DC-10, in the ground training, they really emphasize when you're flying over Iran, consider Iran an ocean. You are not going to land in Tehran. And they emphasize you will not land in Tehran. You will go somewhere else. That was in the back of my head. Our plan was not to land in Iran, anywhere but Iran. So as we're getting the charts out, it was looking like uh, the, the best bet was going to be, we had a choice, maybe Bahrain, or uh, there was a military base in Turkey, and we chose to go to a commercial. Because we're at a military base. We have 241 people. What are you going to do with them all? It was hot in the summertime, you know, it, all kinds of problems. So we decided we're going to go to Bahrain. I was just ready to pick up the radio when the warning came off a third time. And now we have no bottles, but we got the fire warning going on. Now this time, when the fire warning activated, we were taught that you have a red light for cargo fire, and underneath that are a series of eight or nine little LED lights, and those are smoke lights. And there's an optical device in the cargo hold so that when um, smoke interferes between two light points that's supposed to light up, that they didn't light up. So we're thinking, probably a false warning. So you've got, you've got all three bottles are blown now? Uh, two bottles two are bottles blown. Are I blown. got one more the bottle, but I can't, I can't do it. And that's on the timer? Yep. Okay. So that one is an hour and a half after the second one, yep. if things are still or happening. It. So you've blown the second bottle. You have no more control over that. Um, you certainly don't have all the information that you'd like. No. And you're getting some mixed messages here as well. But you know for sure you've had fire warnings. You blew the bottles. But now the smoke indication is not consistent with the fire warning. Correct. And the other thing that was kind of rolling around in the back of my mind was when we left Mumbai, um, we went through some really heavy weather out over the the Indian Ocean, and we had St. Almost fire all over the winter. It was a spectacular view, <laughs> but it was really bumpy. Another thought that went through my mind is maybe because of this turbulence, it might have jarred something loose that, you know, shorted out and made a contact to give us that warning. So then the uh, Jerry Maguire comes back up into the cockpit and says, uh, Bowie says, we took our shoes off, we walked the cabin, and uh, the floor on row 29 aft uh, is warmer than the rest of the airplane. And three of us, of the seven, feel as though we smell slight traces of smoke. There's ducting that comes from the third engine up under the floor, right, that goes to the air conditioning uh, packs or units. And I thought, I wonder if that's... What's making the floor warm? Right. But when he said, we three of us think we smell smoke, I'll remember John Walkman, my, my co-pilot, I remember the look in his face, and uh, it, it was like a deer staring in the headlights. And I turned to Chase, and Chase says, uh, we're not going to try to go to Bahrain, are we? I said, guys, here's the deal. I said, Tehran, 
is we looked in our chart 84 miles away versus an hour and probably at that point, probably an hour and five to an hour and 15 minutes to Bahrain. <clears throat> and we made a collective decision, and they told me, said, you know, you can decide what you want and we'll go with it, but we think Tehran is the best option. And I thought Tehran was the best option. And that's when the fun started. How was air traffic control? How was it working with them in getting the airplane um, on the ground? Was that a fairly fluid event? No. When you fly in that part of the world, the Iranian air traffic controllers are really the best. They speak clearly, distinctly. Um, and they're real good at Northwest 41 climb, maintain 320. Perfect. But if you say something like, we have an emergency, uh, we have a May Day, and we need to land in Tehran, they don't necessarily understand everything you're saying. The non-standard stuff doesn't, uh, doesn't Yeah, the flow. everyday conversa conversa conversational mm -hmm. um, linguistics doesn't really register. They've been taught, you know, climb, descend, <laughs> turn, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they're real good at that. But if you try to have a conversation with them in English, um, not always that good. Yeah. And you're familiar with that from your previous experience. Right. There, right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it was very difficult getting across to them that we had an emergency. And um, they kept saying, stand by, stand by. And I, I think what they were doing is probably trying to find someone desperately that could come up and tell them what we were saying, what our problem was. At one point, they told us to go to Tabriz. They go, Tehran 4-1, you go Tabriz. I said, negative Tabriz. Now, I'd been to Tabriz because at Iran Air, we served uh, Tabriz, and it's a joint commercial uh, and military airport, mostly military. But I didn't want to do that because the support structure that was in Tabriz probably would not be anywhere close to handling a foreign-type U.S. airplane, right. maybe a Boeing, mm -hmm. but certainly not a Douglas. I mean, as you're thinking through the process, you have all this background, this foundation and everything, but you're, all, you're thinking not just about getting on the ground, what's going to happen after we get on the ground? Well, what, what's going what to happen kind of... after we got on the ground was a big deal because, number one, you're violating the first rule you were taught. Thou shalt not? Land in an ocean of Iran. Yeah. Right. You, you don't do that. So... We were violating tenant number one. I wasn't really worried about what was going to happen on the ground in terms of equipment and support. I had no worry whatsoever. Iran Air is one of the best airlines in the Middle East. Still is today, honestly. That wasn't my issue. The, the problem was how are we going to deal with this politically because we have... I don't know, I can't remember how many people were hostage in Iran for 444 days, but we had 241 people. Mm -hmm. and of course, there were a lot of Indians, Dutch, French, uh, a few English, and some Americans. Um, and I wasn't sure how that was going to play out, but that was, that was more in the background. We had bigger problems, which were getting the thing on the ground. Because, mm -hmm. again, we had so much fuel. Our problem was... A decision point, we're overweight for landing by 74,000 pounds, I think it was, okay? 
If you do an overweight landing in an aircraft like that, then automatically before you leave again, you have to have an overweight inspection. Okay, who's going to do that? Right? How are you going to get that signed up? Or do you just take off and ignore it? Hmm. Um, but if you dump the fuel, now you don't have enough fuel to get to Amsterdam. And how much fuel are you going to have left? How far can you go on it mm -hmm. uh, to get out of the country of Iran if, in fact, they let you go? So we talked about that and decided that probably best to dump the fuel because a maintenance issue, we thought, would be more of an issue than the fuel situation. Okay, we could beg for fuel, but you can't beg for maintenance. It's not going to happen. Of course, all this stuff is going through our mind. They still haven't allowed us to go to Tehran yet. Finally, um, and this is probably a dangerous thing to do, I told the controller we were proceeding direct to Tehran. I got another standby. And I'm thinking, why? Why are we getting standby? We've explained we're having an emergency, we declare mayday, mayday, mayday. What are they doing, right? So eventually he comes back and says, uh, Northwest 4-1, you come Tehran. Okay, we're going to Tehran. He said, uh, uh, you're cleared to the Victor Romeo Beacon to hold and um, contact approach on so-and-so and so-and-so. Well. We didn't want to do a holding pattern because the whole objective was to get the thing on the ground. We got there now, do we tell them we're dumping fuel? We're going to dump 74,000 pounds of fuel over your city mm -hmm. at low altitude. So uh, we decided not to say anything and just dump the fuel. We didn't want to complicate the situation mm -hmm. anymore. It would have taken more time to get that to across to them. Would, uh, so we made one turn in the hold and they gave us a vector for the ILS and we uh, made the approach and landed in Tehran. It was it was almost surreal, and I remember I remember distinctly when we heard the 200 foot call on the uh, the lady that tells us how low we are. It was 200 feet, and I remember thinking to myself, "Here goes my job. This is it." Just as we were touching down and the nose coming down, I'm thinking, "Wait a minute, I may not even get back to the U.S. Why am I worried about my job?" <laughs> Right. But it went through my Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you're on the ground. Now we're and, on the ground. And you're thinking now about, like what you said, like, holy smokes, well, now we're here. We're really here. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's a whole new set of problems. Yeah. So what um, what now kind of thing are we going to do, right? I take it you, they, did they give you a gate to taxi to or they give you or you went to some holding point and right. uh, just stopped the airplane, shut it down? Um, we told them we were going to roll to the end of the runway and taxi off on the hard stand. Could they send? Now, as, as we were touching down, there were so many fire trucks at that airport. I don't think the city of Los Angeles has that many <laughs> Fire truck. I mean, they were everywhere. So I had asked them, could they have the fire trucks come up to the aircraft and assess the cargo hold from the aft right-hand side of the airplane and inform us if we have any uh, distortions or signs of smoke or anything like that. So we turned off, and I left the engines running. And um, John Walkman saw the, the truck go around the front to the... You can't see the back of the airplane, but that's where they were going. And finally, 
uh, from the tower, they said, uh, we observe no smoke or heat or whatever. I said, Roger. And then um, I asked them if they still had the people movers. Now, um, that's what they call them in Iran, the people movers. They were the buses. They didn't have enough jetways at the time, so they'd move people with buses out to the airplane. From the terminal to the airplane yeah. and, and, and vice said, versa. Yes, Captain. I said, could you send us buses for 250 people? They go, yes, Captain. So I kept the engines running. and, I, and I Why said, did you keep the engines running? Because they couldn't get near the airplane with the engines running. I mean, that was how stupid that was to think, but that was my But theory. there was a little bit of a defense shield there. To, yeah. You know, they were I not going to come near right. the airplane, not near the running engines. I keep away until I had a plan. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Because we needed a plan desperately mm -hmm. at that point. Yeah. So um, I asked uh, John to try to get a hold of the company. Again. Now, in the meantime, the engineer had been trying desperately to get the company. And I remember, he said, Bo, I have the company. Let's get on HF, okay? So I listened and I said, uh, we know you're in Tehran. This is an international incident. We have no support in Tehran. And for now, you're on your own. And we heard those words. Kind of like, we know you're there. Good luck. And that's when I got scared. So remind us a little bit of the, like, kind of the, 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 the context here. Again, a, the company policy was don't, don't land there. Um, we've got the, the Iraq war yep. is going on, um, and the relationship between the U.S. and Iran. has been hostile for a number of years. It just so turned out that this was the first American airplane, American airline, not, maybe not airplane, but American airline to land in Tehran in 26 years. So you've got all that, you know, U.S. flag carrier. You've got a diverse group of people on board and no idea what kind of response you're going to get past now you've had the fire truck come out and say, we don't, exactly. we don't see anything. We learned there was no fire. And of course, now what goes through your mind is, oh, God, I, di I diverted for a false warning. Because you question yourself and you question the decisions you've made because this has, this could have really bad implications for our country, for other countries, mm -hmm. right? Because they had 241 hostages plus a crew of seven. Right, right, right. right. Available to them. So that kind of went through, I mean, when I say went through my mind, it, there are so many thoughts moving around. It's, sure. You know, you're trying to push those thoughts out so that you have time to to deal with the here and the now, but they're still there. Right, absolutely. And and you've been clearly told by your company that you're on your own. Yes. Figure it out. I don't believe the dispatcher at the time really understood what those words would have meant to us. He probably was just as frustrated because he didn't know what to do either. I would never fault him or anybody else for saying that. Of course, uh, they were probably really frustrated. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're on the ground with no company support, no U.S. government, State Department support. Correct. In a hostile country, with 241 passengers and seven crew, on a DC-10, sitting on a ramp, with your engines running. There we were. Was there anything that about that you recognized, or maybe one of the crew or something identified about the mood, the atmosphere, the feeling of the passengers? Did they realize the magnitude? 
of the moment. Well, I'm sure they did, um, but I didn't personally have any interaction with them. I, my interaction was primarily with the um, purser and a few of the flight attendants, and they were organized. So I think when they got off, what, what I did notice was there, there wasn't any pushing or shoving of people. It was extremely organized and calm. So the fact that there were buses there and they knew they were being taken care of um, probably would indicate that they were okay with it. I do know at the terminal, one of the biggest mistakes I made, and I, I made mistakes, and one of the biggest ones was I didn't stay in contact with the purser because I learned later that he was desperately trying to find out what's going on. And having no information is worse sometimes than the wrong information, believe it or not. To be done over again, I would have done that. But I, I was so intent and focused on getting the airplane ready to get out of there to open up the opportunity for the people to get back on. Um, that's one thing I really needed to do better. And that, that speaks to the value of good, clear communication, right? Trying sure. to trying to <clears throat> communicate, ensure that people are well informed, or at least as best right. informed as you can possibly make them, recognizing that there's there's some some limitations. Certainly, some limitations. Exactly. Here. And you know, I learned a lot working in the corporate world that I didn't know working in the airline world. It's a different culture, and. In the corporate world, communication is everything. I mean, that car better be by the airplane when you get there, right? The F FBO better be ready for a quick turn. Um, and that's all your planning. And the expectation, the bar is high, right? The, the, the expectation is everything goes perfectly. Exactly. If it goes perfectly, you did your job. Now you know that you don't have a problem. Now we know it was a false so, one. Yep. So <clears throat> what's your next thought? You're asking for people movers. What happens next? What what are you thinking? You've got to get well, off the ground as soon as possible. How are you going to accomplish maintenance? The the biggest issue at that point was crowd control. With two hundred forty one people on the airplane, there's only so many lavatories. Iran. It's the middle of the summer. Iran is hot. I know that. What time of day is it? It's four thirty in the morning. The when you land when you touch down. Yeah, yeah. So this is yeah. probably. Not long after that? Five, not long yeah. after that. Okay. So that's kind of went through my mind. I've got to separate the problems. There are too many problems. So it, I, I tried to think of compartmentalizing each as a separate issue. So we had the maintenance. We needed fuel. We needed uh, inspection of the cargo. I've got 36,000 pounds of cargo that somehow has to get to Amsterdam. And I've got 241 people who's going to feed them, where are they going to go. The first thing was to start eliminating the problems. Now, I'm not saying the people were a problem. I'm saying that if they stayed on the airplane, it would be a problem. But if they get off the airplane, that also might could be a be problem. Could be a problem. It, yes, <laughs> it could. Like you said, they've got 241 potential hostages here. Yes, they do. Right. What is the most important thing to me at that point? And that was, how do I get the airplane out of here with the people? If I can't get the airplane going, They've got everybody. Mm -hmm. So um, I asked them if they could take the people to the to the terminal. And Jerry Maguire, as a matter of fact, he came up in the cockpit and I explained to him what we're doing. They had already taken all the food out of the galley, 
they had it in um, plastic bags. They took the drinks. I asked them to hide the liquor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because you're in a, yeah. a Muslim line. country, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, not to take liquor off the airplane, just, you know, find a place to put it where it's mm-hmm. not visible. And uh, he did. He was, he was fabulous. He had everything, they had everything organized. And the people movers got there. The people um, went down the, the stairs that they had in an orderly fashion. There was no panic. Uh, it went smooth as clockwork. At that point, when the people were off, a fellow came up in the cockpit. And I remembered from my days in Iran that the ground staff wear uniforms like the piloting staff, except their stripes are silver and the flight crew are gold. So a gentleman walked in the cockpit and he had four stripes, so I knew he was head of ground operations there. So when he walked in the, the cockpit, I turned and greeted him in Farsi. And his eyeballs, he couldn't believe it. He was almost speechless for a second. And he goes, Captain, how you know Farsi? <laughs> I had to laugh. Uh, explained to him that I was Iran Air pilot from many, many years ago when he was a little fellow. And uh, so that, that kind of um, made a bond. Was able to make an immediate mental contact with this individual so we had something in common. I, I probably left out that uh, just prior to him coming, them coming on the airplane, I told my crew, I said, and I told Jerry too, I said, look, this is a different culture. Things happen in Iran in a totally different way than you're used to. They will do things that to you are absolutely crazy in the way they do it. I said, but it's their way of doing it. And in the end, it always works out. And then I divided the problems in the sense that I told uh, the engineer, Chase, I said, Chase, you're going to handle the mechanical. Everything mechanical with the airplane, it's your deal. And John, your communications, you get us and keep us on the outside world so we have some line of communication. And keep me posted of what they want. And Chase, you keep me posted of any mechanical problems you have. I'll handle the politics, and then the three of us can work this thing. Um, we just knock down whatever problem comes up, we just knock them down one at a time. And the main goal is, how do we get out? Get the airplane fixed. That's all we're going to concentrate on. Whether or not they let us go is a separate issue. We don't care. We want the airplane capable of going first. That's fantastic. You prioritize what needs to be done. You're aware of the the, the bigger picture here, the political circumstances right. and all the things that you've described, but you're recognizing in the moment that you're interacting with people, with people on the ground that can help you. So long as you're respectful of them, that's the approach. And uh, you've developed a, a relationship very quickly um, by knowing some of the things you knew from being there. But, but even if you didn't, just demonstrating some fundamental respect for somebody that you're working with um, and figuring out how you can right. kind of keep things moving. Adapting to the instantaneous culture shift that you have to deal with here takes you a long way toward getting to your to your goal, and that's that's the way we approached it. Yeah. So you're 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 a troubleshooter, you're a problem solver, you're a diplomat, you're a politician, you're a, you're a people manager. You're ultimately in the end, you're as a captain, um, you're responsible for all of those things. 
and there's an awful lot there. But fundamentally, you understand the relationship with the people, the cultural differences, not trying to impose your will on somebody else, trying to work within the system that exists and to navigate all these areas to arrive at, uh, at, a, at hopefully at a, at a point where you can, you can depart. Well, that sums it up pretty well. Um, you don't realize you're doing all these things as it's happening. Stress level is, is, I didn't know it until it was all over. I didn't sleep for three days. Adrenaline, the amount of adrenaline that must have been in our bodies was unbelievable. Because the other two guys, they didn't sleep either. Couldn't sleep. Yeah. It was like you were on fire for, until the adrenaline sort of drained its way out of your system. An area of, of interest to me is the, the area of social capital, the idea of networks and, uh, and then relational capital, the, the exchange that, uh, that you develop with people within that network, um, the relationships you develop within that network. And you created one very quickly, internal to the aircraft, external to the aircraft. Um, and then, so then how did, um, how did you then kind of, how did you then proceed through um, you know, kind of moving through. You got the people off the airplane. You've got some um, maintenance um, coming, presumably. Uh, you've had the fire folks look at the airplane. And uh, so tell us a little bit about the, how the maintenance kind of went. Because you had, you had the, the ground operations um, supervisor or leader or whatever he was called. That's who your initial interchange was with, right? It was. And then, and then you had to kind of address all these other things. I was so focused on the first task of getting the airplane ready to go. I didn't want to have to stay there, right? I took a company asset into a hostile environment. It's real funny because when we got to the bar after all this happened, as we walk and everybody started applauding and cheering and somebody shouted out, this proves even the Iranians don't want a DC-10. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so hard. <laughs> That's funny. The whole thing erupted. That yeah, is it funny. Was, it yeah. was funny. What so, bar did you end up in? Where was it? It was yeah. in the NH in uh, across the river. There's one that sits out there in a little town. I can't remember the name of it. It's kind of, I can't say it's isolated. You have to walk quite a ways down to the, there's a ferry that goes across to get into Amsterdam. But yeah, it's a really nice hotel. So, That's Bo, great. even in the middle of the stress, and like you said, that tunnel vision focus, you still had the presence of mind to use the assets you had, which were your crew, the people on your team, right? Your wingmen, you divided out those responsibilities. <clears throat> so even though you were in that tunnel of stress, your training took over. So how did you continue to use them as you faced your next challenge, which was getting that Clean out. I divided the tasks on a, on a higher level. In other words, maintenance, you're going to be communications, I'm going to be politics. So that kind of set the overall umbrella. Then I let them go because <clears throat> I realized that when you give people tasks and you're a higher level position, you need to let people figure out how to do it on their own. You have to understand and accept that the process they use for getting it done may not be the way you would do it, but you need to leave them alone. Only if they make a mistake or if they need help do you interject. Okay, and you, you, 
are very careful on how you correct a mistake, right? You can't be accusatory. You go in with a question. Hmm, you think that's going to work? Okay, well, I'm not really sure, blah, blah, blah. Huh, I wonder what would happen if we tried that. In getting along with people, you have to allow them to come to their own conclusion. If you don't, you take away their pride, you take away their, their self-motivation. Um, so when I gave Chase a maintenance, now I work for Chase, right? And I gave John communications, I'm working for John. That's, that's how I handle things. So what did Chase get figured out for the maintenance? Well, the first, the first issue we had, he had to come to me, he said, Bo, we got a problem. I said, what's that? He says, we can't open the cargo door. I said, why not? He says, come on out here. So we went out, we ran up the belt loader. All the directions for operating the cargo door are, are on the gone. inside. No, they're gone. They're all worn off. Oh. <laughs> so, I mean, there's about three switches and buttons and everything. You don't want to start pushing things and jam it so it doesn't get open. So we're looking at that, and I said, God, what are we going to do, Chase? He says, well, maybe there's a page in the manual. Yep, good idea. So he goes in, he looks through the manual, and it's the only page that's missing. Isn't that how things work? It's the only page that's missing. So he had the presence of mind to slowly go through the manual, page by page, in that section of the manual, it was in the wrong place, right? He could have just said, it's not in the manual. And then we could have then tried to do it and jam it. But he didn't do that. He took the time to go back, think it through, went through every page and found the right page and he brought it out and we got it open. So people are ingenious. I mean, if you let them think through a problem, in most cases, they'll come up with a solution. You just have to be patient and, and then let them do it. So that, that's how we did that. The other thing was we had to have an inspection before we left because we had blown all the bottles. Now, you can't carry cargo in a compartment that has no fire protection. So if we did leave, we couldn't leave with any cargo. So we had 36,000 pounds of baggage and freight. We had to get that somehow to Amsterdam. So that created another problem. By the solution of one problem, it creates a different problem. What I did was I went to the force striper and I said, Captain, we have a problem. And he goes, Captain, what's the problem? I said, I have 36,000 pounds of cargo and baggage here. I can't carry it on the airplane, correct? He said, oh, no, Captain, you have no extinguisher. I said, okay, can you help me? Well, Captain, uh, how can we help? I said, do you think Iran Air could possibly take our cargo and baggage to Amsterdam? Would that be possible? He said, I don't know, Captain, but I will ask. I said, okay. And a little while later, he came back and said, Captain, we have decided we're going to help you and we're going to move the the cargo and the baggage to Amsterdam, it will leave on a flight at 4 p.m. today. I said, oh, thank you so much. You just solved a huge problem for me. No problem, Captain. They're just people, right? Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with people, if you treat them as good people, they're going to do everything they can to help you, right? 
certain things you can't control, but you work with the things that you can control, right? And that's how that. And you couldn't yeah. control that there likely wasn't anyone that worked on a DC-10 in uh, oh, that was Chevron at that point. So <clears throat> how did you get the maintenance checked well, the, off? The, the captain brought me a maintenance fellow and I explained to him, I said, uh, we have to have inspection on our airplane part of departure. He goes, Captain, I'm, I'm not DC-10. I, hmm. I said, well, you see, in their country, like pilots that have type ratings, their mechanics have type ratings. So I asked him, I said, do you have type ratings in, in many airplanes you work on? He goes, oh, yes, Captain. I said, could I see your, may I see your license? Oh, yes, Captain. Of course, he wants to show me his license, right? Shows it to me, and I look down here. He's worked on the British Trident. I said, uh, oh, God, you've worked on the Trident. He said, oh, yes, Captain. Very complicated airplane. I said, yes. So many cables and pulleys and oh yes, Captain, it's the British way. I said yes. I said that's like the British way too. He goes really. I said yeah, it's just the same. He said I will look. So he goes and looks. And a little while later, he comes back. He says Captain, I see no problem. So I went to John and I said John, we've had a mechanic inspect the cargo area, and has determined that there is no issue with proceeding further, but we have to have it signed off. So can you figure out a way to get that done? He said, I'll work on that. So a little while later, he came and said, Bo, we got it worked out. I said, what's that? He said, the FAA just gave us special dispensation to sign off. We sign off the maintenance based on the report of this guy. That's how we did it. Wow. So we didn't break the rule. The wonderful people in Minneapolis got a permission to let us sign the maintenance log, and that's how we solved that issue. So a little That's bit fantastic. of support from our friendly aviation agency in that <laughs> instance. <laughs> yes. And then for getting the passengers back on board the aircraft bow and answering the Iranian government's question to yes. you for publicity, <clears throat> how did you deal with those well, two? At one point, we were getting close to going um, We'd worked out the fuel situation and, and we got the fuel in the airplane enough to get to answer them. Of course, we also considered that we could go someplace other than Amsterdam, but it would rather go right to Amsterdam because, you know, we got 241 people that want to get home. And you've you got the luggage. Yeah, yeah, the luggage. Yeah, the luggage is going there. And you've oh, and the had blue... enough fun for one day. Yeah, yeah. Right? and <laughs> the blue box, but we'll talk about that okay. later. So about 6 in the morning, we started seeing a different crowd of people showing up. And there were more suits, people with suits, and they would be talking. And I started noticing this. That's when I got a little bit apprehensive because I knew something was going on. Uh, I happened to be in the cabin. Iran Air insisted that they clean the airplane for us. And I explained, no, please, sir, you don't. They, they cleaned that airplane better than Northwest ever cleaned an airplane. It was the cleanest DC-10 I'd ever been on. They did a fabulous job. But at one point, uh, a fellow, um, one of the leaders here came up and says, Captain, uh, he says, uh, could, could you come outside, please? I said, okay, sure, what is the problem? He says, no, you come. Okay, so I walked outside, and down the bottom of the jetway is a crowd of people with, with the news microphones, and I go, oh, no. <clears throat> so 
before I walk out, he says, Captain, he says, they are going to ask you questions. I said, well, what kind of questions? And he says, well, many questions. I said, no. I said, I will answer three questions. What three questions do you want to hear about? He said, well, Captain, now he worked for air traffic control. He says, okay. He says, three questions. I will translate. I said, fine. He said, um, okay, why did you come to Tehran? Number two, how were you treated yeah. in Iran? And I said, the Persian people are well known for their hospitality. I said, over the years, there are many attempted conquerors of Persia, but in most cases, those conquerors were won over by the Persian people. I said, we have been treated incredibly well, and we're extremely appreciative of the hospitality that we've been shown here. But the third question at any point, he says, uh, and Captain, he says, uh, could you say something good about air traffic control? And I'm going, here's my opportunity, right? So we go down the jetway, and they have the news uh, anchor man there, and he's talking to the uh, fellow that I'm working with here. And he says to me, he says, Captain, we want to know why you came to Tehran. I said, well, I said, uh, we came to Iran because we had an in-flight emergency. We had what was indicated to us as a fire in a cargo compartment. And we were very close to Tehran, but we were far away from other locations where we could have landed. And the Iranian people were so very gracious at allowing us to land in their country in an emergency. And they have been so good to us during our stay here we want to thank all of the Iranian people for the hospitality that Persians are known for in the Middle East. Oh, they really like that. I would like everyone to know that when a pilot has an emergency, no matter what country he is from, it's irrelevant. He's a pilot. And controllers and pilots have a special bond that they protect each other. And the Iranian controllers are the best in the world. And they did everything they could to keep us safe. They did everything they could to get us on the ground uh, swiftly. And had there actually been a fire uh, and we lived, it would only have been because of the Iranian air traffic control. Then we go upstairs, <clears throat> they bring the people. Getting ready to go. A Different Iranian gentleman comes up and says, Captain, uh, we need three people. And I'm going, why do you need three people? He says, no, Captain, we need three people. I said, no, sir, we can't have only three people. We, you can have 241 people plus crew, but you can't have three people. He said, no, Captain, no, Captain, you don't understand. I said, okay. Uh, help me. He said, we just want three people to talk to our press. I said, okay, excuse me, give me a minute. And I thought about that and I went, okay, what's going to happen here? Are they going to take them hostage? Are they um, going to get people to admit that 
were a load of spies and we came in here for the wrong reason. I didn't know. So I thought, okay, <clears throat> I'll go down on the stairs with them and I'll select people that I, I feel um, probably would be good Americans, right? So I went to first class and I explained to people what was gonna happen and I told them that most likely you're going to be asked how you were treated by the Iranian people. And if you sincerely feel you were treated well, I want you to raise your hand and volunteer. If you feel as though there were any issues, please don't raise your hand, no problem. So everybody in the cabin raised their hand. So I picked an older couple, uh, probably in their 70s, and a young girl about, well, she must have been about 15 or 16. So I had them go down, that's exactly what they did. How are you treated in Iran? How do you like Iran? What do you think of the Iranian people? And they were very gracious in their responses. And we go back up the jetway, the stairs pulls away, and I remember looking at John Walkman and Chase Osborne, and I said, guys, I think we're getting out of here. They go, we don't believe it, we're gonna leave. I said, yeah, we're gonna leave. <laughs> So we fired that thing up and... How did you get the fuel? <clears throat> that was the last big How did we get fuel? To leave. Fuel was a big issue. The problem with getting the fuel um, was payment, number one, and, and trying to sort out some system. We thought about... Well, first thing that happened, I asked uh, the ground captain, I said, you know, Captain, we need fuel. How can we arrange for fuel? He says, Captain, uh, I will go check. So he comes back and he says, uh, Captain, maybe uh, KLM. Here's a phone number of the KLM representative. And he gave me a phone. So I called the KLM representative and he goes, well, <laughs> he says, you know, Captain, he says, uh, Northwest is flying under our authority. We can't be too friendly to the Americans, and I really apologize. I'm in the cockpit during this phone call, and I was talking to Chase and uh, John about it, and they said, well, Bill, why don't we take up a collection, and we'll pay cash. I said, well, I've got a credit card, and I forgot in the Middle East there is no credit. You don't have credit. You can't buy with a credit card. So that wasn't going to work. And I really didn't want to take the cash um, from the passengers to do this. So I asked John to get a hold of the company when he could, tell him we need um, somehow to make payment. Well then, that same guy comes back up to the cockpit and says, Captain, does Northwest Airlines have CETA, S-I-T-A? And that's the international communication system from maybe the 30s through the 50s or 60s. But we had it at Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yes, we have CETA. He says, uh, okay, Captain. He says, uh, you get me the address of CETA. He said, and we, if your company will send a message via CETA that, uh, that your company will make payment, and if, Captain, you will guarantee that if the company doesn't make payment, you will make payment. I said, absolutely, I'll sign anything you want. 
And fortunately, the company came through with CETA and got, got authorization to, to buy the fuel. And that's how we got the fuel. It was amazing. But it worked. And you made it safely to Amsterdam and the cargo followed? The cargo got to Amsterdam uh, the next morning. It was all there. Everybody got their luggage. We left there, I think it was about 10.30, 11.30, something like that. So you're on the ground for five hours? Six and a half six, hours. Six and a half hours. Is there something that you reflect on now that proved really valuable in helping you navigate the session. We talked about the foundation, the understanding of interacting with people, being respectful in their culture and um, developing their relationships, but something that leaders, whether in aviation or not, might consider um, for their own opportunities, for their own professional development and growth. We had a thing in the airline called crew bonding, and it was really interesting from a social aspect. Uh, in the early days, uh, when we do a flying schedule, we'd do it a month at a time. So you'd fly with the same crew all month. And it was interesting because if you had a group of four or six people, pretty much right on, a routine would start. You know, there'd be somebody would be the jokester, somebody would be the really serious, somebody would be somewhere in the middle. But you would all bond together and you start working as a team naturally. As the computer age came, we no longer flew a complete month with one crew. We wound up, every time he got on the airplane, it was a different crew, right? I don't think my last four years or five years of flying, back in the early to mid-2000s, I ever flew with the same co-pilot more than three times that whole period. <clears throat> so it was all different. But yet the crew bonding would still happen. And what was really interesting was that if you changed one person on that crew, outcomes could be totally different. So in this experience, the practice and, and developed ability to bond with the people that you're dependent upon, you get more than if you're someone that remains isolated and you demand. Mm -hmm. So if you're a manager, um, and you have a group of people that you have to look over. You, you bond with the people. And, you know, they too have to have some way of, of seeing you and bonding with you, right? Um, say, for example, just a skill set. You're working with someone that doesn't have a particular skill set, but, but they're really good at other things. So from a management standpoint, you find people's weaknesses. Okay, and sometimes they're, say for example, someone just can't get into the computer world. But when it comes to them going up and being able to win over someone and uh, as a result of that bring you more and more business, mm -hmm. well, I think overlook the computer skills and find somebody else that can help them out, mm -hmm. right? Yet, there, there's the other school, well, if you can't do the job, then I'll get somebody that can and you go out and look for somebody who has great computer skills, which you may get, but look what you threw out the window, right? You just didn't have that person in the right place, mm -hmm. or you didn't support them to, to um, make up for some of their 
obvious deficiencies, right? That's I, I a develop recognizing people's skills, their strengths, their weaknesses, right? And, and putting them in a role that, that plays to that. Absolutely. As opposed to trying to force something that, that doesn't work and, you know, getting people, put them on, in the right seat on the bus kind of thing. Right and exactly uh, and have everybody all working toward the same goal. You have people that are aligned with your purpose and your mission and what you're trying to accomplish, and maybe it's a matter of they're just not in the right role. So right. maybe that's not the IT person. Maybe that's your business development or your salesperson. Well, right? that's exactly correct. And you know, that's the biggest thing in management is is the ability to recognize, the ability to take a look at this human being mm -hmm. and be able to um, determine where the facets were and then understand that every human has weaknesses. You just have to find out what they are and then your job is to supplement those with a solution to their problem because everybody that has a weakness knows they have a weakness. A lot of times they try to hide it, mm -hmm. right? Because you really want that job and you don't want them to know you don't know how to use the computer. But that person can bring you two, three, four hundred thousand dollars worth of business a year just because of their personal skills. And Bo, you did such a great job through this whole instance of diverting this aircraft was staying relentlessly focused on the positive. Even hearing you now, you you don't get diverted by the negative. You thought momentarily, oh shoot, I blew it, I'm on the ground. There wasn't a fire. You followed what you thought were best practices. You got the input you needed to make the best decision you could at the time. And then you relentlessly moved forward through this incident to a successful outcome without getting mired in the negativity, focusing on yourself or on your crew. You just kept encouraging, looking for the next positive step. That's what I love about the story. It's a model of the idea of servant leadership. Um, it's the idea, I think, in when you did things like, A, stay positive, stay focused on what you're doing, don't get bogged down by the negative, continue to try to move forward, you're assigning the, you know, gave people responsibilities and then you trusted them, empowered them to go do their work um, and supported them in doing that and recognizing that you're all on the same team. There's two kinds of thinkers. There's linear thinkers and there's global thinkers. A linear thinker would be a person, say for example, with an engineering mindset. And they are most comfortable if you had a field of stones and you told them go from A to B and there's a boulder here, a linear thinker will pick out every stone until they get to the boulder and stop, okay? A global thinker will ignore these stones and take a sledgehammer to the boulder right away. And when you're in the training world with flight crews, you, you really notice this distinction. You notice the pilots that are um, definitely step by step by step by step. And if you get them out of their comfort zone, it all falls apart. And they have characteristics. In an airline, a linear thinker will stay in one airplane for nine, 10, 11 years. They don't change often. But when they change, it's very difficult for them to get through training because the way their brain works is they take in tons of data. But that data has to get into alignment and that takes time. But you have a specific footprint in the training arena. What happened oftentimes, I noticed, uh, I was a 
training chairman for Northwest, that you'd find guys that flew a particular airplane for nine years, they'd get to here and they couldn't do it, okay? And typical instructor comments would be, it, it seems like he can't remember anything. He'll do it right this day, do it perfect the next day, and the third day, it's like he never did it. Why? Because their brain is still aligning the information. Now, once it gets aligned, that guy's gonna stay on that airplane for the next 10 or 15 years. Now you take the global thinker, okay? He's on a Boeing airplane. He looks through the Douglas manual. He goes, oh, I know about that. I know about that. I don't know about, I don't know about this. This is what I'm going to read. So he'll read that. Then he gets done that and he goes through the manual. Yep, yep, I know I've done that, done that. And he, oh, I'm going to focus here. Mm -hmm. He'll probably finish his training early. But he has a global mindset. That airplane's not going to satisfy him very long. So he's going to be in the training department the minute he can get off this airplane and do another one. So he costs you more money, but it looks like he's costing you less money. He creates training cycles because the global thinker jumps ahead. The linear thinker stays in line. And when it comes to pilots and they face problems, it really depends on what their background, you have no idea what your background does to you and how it's gonna help you in the end. Something that, well, I'll give you a good example. My father, who died when I was very young, I don't remember much about him except the few things he would say, like, son, you can solve any problem, and here's how you do it. No matter what you try, you can do half of it yourself. And through the solution of the first half, you can figure out another 25%, and the last, you hire it out. Yeah, I, I remember him saying that. So, I mean, I was like 13 or 14, Right? Mm -hmm. But that's always been in the back of my mind, okay? So I've never been afraid to try anything, right? I know I'm going to get halfway there just through common sense. And then by getting halfway through, you know you're going to get more. People don't understand how their background sometimes influences their whole thought process. and what It moves their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you've got to get out of that comfort zone and uh, seek some alternative solutions. And you went through this process, you looked at the procedures, you evaluated the things, but then you recognize that you have to start consider all these other things and become uh, a more strategic thinker, a more global thinker as you're outlined, right. as opposed to a more linear thinker. And that's not to say that those different people don't have places in different roles, right? That's another thing I think about recognizing talent and where you can place people, where their value uh, is best served, it's incumbent upon the individual as well to have some self-awareness, understand some of their own strengths and weaknesses, um, get feedback on where they can improve, where there's opportunities for, and then embrace those things and, and, and go from there. So, the blue box. What happened to the blue box? Did you ever find out what was in there? When we took off out of Tehran, the DC-10 is a fairly noisy airplane engine-wise. It, it sounds like huge generators right next to your ear. But the applause and the clapping drowned out the sound of the engines. <laughs> it was unbelievable. We had just leveled off at cruise, and we had ACARS. <clears throat> ACARS is a communication system, computer-type system. It, we get messages on it. And the first message we got was, what was the disposition of the blue box? And we looked at each other and went, we just spent six and a half hours in Tehran, and they want to know something about a blue box. 
And so I called Jerry McGuire up. I said, Jerry, you know anything about a blue box? He said, where? I said, well, no, we just got a message that we saw I'd never heard of it. What's the blue box? Right? We sent that back, didn't hear anything. So when we got into uh, Turkey, we finally got, HF was kind of cleared up, and we got them. First thing they said, this is dispatch. Uh, do you have a blue box on board? And we went negative. We don't have any cargo. We left all the cargo in Tehran. It's being shipped to Amsterdam. It should be there tomorrow morning. Okay, that's all I heard about. So we got eventually, when this all thing was done, I got back to Minneapolis. I went to the fleet manager at DC-10, Rob Stewart, and I said, Rob, we had something on the airplane. I'm not sure what it was, but I need to know what we were carrying. He said, what was it? I said, no, they talked about a blue box. He said, okay, I'll, I'll check it out. About two weeks later, he called me, and he said, Bo, I figured out the blue box. I said, what was it? He says, $4.5 million worth of gold and diamonds was in that box. I said, did it get to Amsterdam? He said, Every went, everything went where it was supposed to go. That's the other, you know, the other interesting thing about it. In these airplanes, uh, maybe unlike the corporate world and the airline world, you never know what you're carrying. And that, of course, can add to the confusion as to why is something happening. We had value jet, right, with the oxygen mm -hmm. canisters yeah. that caught fire. We don't know what we're carrying down there. Anyway, the blue box was pretty interesting. My co-pilot said, if I'd have known that, we'd have gone the other way. <laughs> I, just, I was just going to say, maybe it was better off you didn't know that they had that, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, it was great. To wrap things up today, I'd like to end just reiterate a few of the traits that you exude. You're humble and you're gracious. And from my short time knowing you both, just professionally and collegially, you're relentlessly focused on doing what is right. You're a great example of what it means to be a servant leader. And I know you do that in your training and you still do that in your flying. I know that you're modest about an event that could have turned out a lot differently not just for you, but for Northwest Airlines, for almost 250 souls, and really for our country, but for your leadership skills that you've developed over a lifetime to that point, your cultural awareness and savvy that was amazingly, almost miraculously provided to you <laughs> early on in your career, and your deft handling of a very delicate situation your commitment to your role, to safety, and to well-being of your passengers and crew is a model for all of us, whether we work in aviation or in other arenas, to look out for our co colleagues and our wingmen as we go through life. I know you're still an active aviator and a contributor to our Pacific Northwest aviation community, and we thank you for that. And if listeners would like to hear more about this experience, we're going to provide a link so that you can hear another excellent podcast where you give a little more ex um, wider, expanded version on this experience in Tehran. We'll provide that. And also, I know that you still do some training, and we'd like to get that information into folks' hands as well. So thanks for being with us today. Any last words, John? It's been an absolute pleasure, Bo. And this, this, everything that you've shared, I think, is of, of, of varying values to, to, to a whole variety, a wide audience. 
and can be translated into so many parts of our business. And, 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 and we all are experienced in the aviation community, but we have so many different roles in aviation that people play. Air crew, pilots, and flight attendants, and mechanics, and um, aviation attorneys, and finance people, and insurance people. We have leaders, and we've got individual contributors, and I think everybody can, can benefit from this. And, the, and, and there's lots of stories about, you know, you said early on about, you know, well, you, you start doing the self-assessment, and you start, you know, doubting what your decisions were, and did I do the right thing? And, and we all, as professionals, kind of, at least hopefully, kind of do some self-reflection, look in the mirror now and again, and think about where we can improve, and we can provide examples of, um, of things that uh, maybe didn't go so well, not necessarily resulting in crashes or anything dramatic like that, but, but less positive experiences. Um, less positive, less focus on customer service, less focus on team orientation and, and working together collectively to get the job done. Um, but that can be negative training. You know, this, this had a great outcome in a very, very difficult circumstance. You were on the ground for six and a half hours. You know, there's stories of, of uh, delays um, in other places with other, um, in other travel experiences that far exceed six and a half hours, and they're not in Tehran. It just is, uh, I think, a great lesson for so many, and uh, really very much appreciate your time and your support. And uh, as I said, just a, uh, an honor and a privilege to speak with you. So well, thank, thank you. Thank you, John. I guess I'd like to leave this with with one comment. <clears throat> I remember from my Czech Airman days, on a uh, on the FAA proficiency check form, one of the last blocks was judgment, and I've. I've thought about that intently. I've come to the conclusion that good judgment is consistent selection of the least risk alternative, depending on your experience. As a pilot examiner, I always try to leave the applicant with, with those words. It's really important that when you're faced with a situation where you don't know what's gonna happen, you don't know the outcome, just use good judgment. Consistent selection of the least risk alternative, depending on your experience. And it'll carry you through every time. So I'd like to thank you both for having me. It's a real treat and a pleasure. It's fun to talk about this. This was probably the best kept secret uh, in the US. Had it not been for Natalie Holloway's um, unfortunate situation, this occurred on the same week. and this never hit the newspapers anywhere, but it was a true international incident, and uh, uh, it was interesting. It's like Rodney King said, you know, can't we all get along? Yeah. And, you know, looking at things like this in that particular light is really what carries you through in the end, if we can just get along. If we could all just get along. Right? Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Parting words of wisdom. The lawyers of Lane Powell serve as trusted counsel, advocates, and advisors to clients who rely on us to resolve complex business, litigation, and regulatory challenges. We invite you to subscribe to periodic legal updates relevant to your business, written and published by lawyers from Lane Powell. To sign up, visit lanepowell.com forward slash subscribe 
and choose any topics that are relevant to your industry or business. Thank you for joining our discussion today. 